0: There's a big misconception about what interactivity is and I see it uh, uh, being interpreted a lot as showmanship. I see a lot of people with workshops or people with events bringing stuff online. The, the first priority they have is to is, is the show with the, the bells and the whistles and the lights and the... The whole operation turns into a live news broadcasting studio with green screen. If you look at the people listening in, they're still basically watching a TV show.
1: You are listening to the Align Remotely podcast, the show dedicated to helping you lead distributed teams under difficult circumstances. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade. As a practitioner, I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Today's episode is on interactivity in the context of working online. And in particular around problem solving. Essentially, you need to be interactive to solve problems effectively as a group. The biggest tool that I've actually come across in terms of this is thinking about problem solving as a form of group learning, particularly in conditions of high uncertainty, like we have with the pandemic. This episode goes into what true interaction means, and it's not about putting on a circus and and show. So, let's dig in. Welcome to the Align Remotely podcast, Bart. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on Uh, So to talk about interactivity and peer-to-peer interactions, both in person and remote. So Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into peer-to-peer in the first place?
0: Yes, I have a background in agriculture engineering. Peer learning has always been a part of how farmers in agriculture learn, where they take turns and visit farms and then run through the numbers and they look at the cows, look at the crops and compare. We did not invent peer learning. It's been there uh, forever. We're also not the only dudes to make a framework. <laughs> After graduation and working for the university as a researcher for some time, I, I got into more of a, an education role. I got into the play of designing these types of workshops. And what I really liked was the experiential workshop angle where people were able to learn something about theory or concept but then immediately within that same workshop apply that to whatever project they're working on currently so the cur- curriculum comes from the conversations you have with the people in that community and what's hot what are the current questions what are the big things people are working on and struggling with right and then your curriculum will be about that mm. and you have to figure out like okay it's a good topic so how do we you know inject knowledge from outside or maybe within the community even get people to meet to exchange on those topics and learn from each other.
1: The way I'm hearing it, there's an interactive component, but there's also a it depends on who you're with in the room component to it also.
0: Yes in terms and also of learning who's, from who's beers. not in the room. Part of it is exactly knowing what experience and expertise is in the room, but then also knowing which expertise or experience to invite into the room if something is lacking. Mm-hmm. Right? And invite such a person as a role model or as a, as a coach who can do a clinic in a way to apply outside expertise as in the group into the context of the group so everybody sees, oh, this is something I can use and interesting and yeah, new knowledge that's, that helps me.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the role of self-direction in all of this if you're learning from peers?
0: It's pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's all about self-direction. I think peer learning applies best in circumstr- topics that are the frontier type of topics where uh, it's pretty new and there's not a lot of knowledge known or not formalized about uh, the area and people need to find their own way. And if you are operating at the frontier, you have to be there for a reason, which is that you want to be there yourself. Yeah. And that's uh the, the key of the, the self-directed elements, right? Uh,
1: what are its difference points to traditional education in business
0: it's pure learning let's say conventional learning depends very heavily on like centralization of knowledge formalization and then broadcasting it and, and repeating like memorization and it, it's distributing known knowledge and, and mm. it works for that circumstance it's in a stable stable conditions things that have been the same for a very long time, and people need to learn about these things, that's the type of education that works. Uh, and then you check
1: f- that they've learned something basically.
0: Yes, yeah, whether they learned a the thing that you said or, or spoke <laughs> about, yeah. yeah. But when you're dealing with frontier topics, when yeah, there's a lot of new things, a lot of unknowns, then the whole structure of learning becomes more exploratory, and you have to learn from the other explorers there barging or trampling around in the frontier and have tried things and learned things and also things you should not be doing or that they've how they failed and share those types of stories. It's learning from personal anecdotes Hmm. and the way you spread that information is by getting those experience into the room and figuring out a format, a way of exchange amongst people, how that knowledge can be spread in the group. It's not even, the books haven't been written there yet. The the founders working on interesting topics don't have the flashy consultant PowerPoint deck yet to present the (laughs) keynote with. It's in their head, the stories, and they're good stories. And it could become even better if you mix them with a group of people that actually can directly apply that knowledge or just reflect and spar a bit. Okay, so I'm hearing you say this. How would that apply to this particular problem I'm working with? The main difference is that, in like, how, how traditional conventional trainings and education goes is that you depend very much on like an expert who's gathered a lot of information, has a history of gathering a lot of information that expert broadcasts and shares that type of information. And peer learning works more with yeah, your, your peers and learning in a group and using the wisdom of the group to to solve problems, to create knowledge and, and share it. Yeah.
1: Is it about creating knowledge or about
0: solving problems the main goal for the entrepreneurs practically is to solve problems and, and, and also to reflect on perspectives things that might happen in the future there's a lot about a re- reflection as well mm-hmm. as in creating knowledge i think that sort of comes when there's like a pattern of conversations or topics around those problems that keep repeating and then somebody will say oh we should make a framework out of this or uh, yeah <laughs> write a book about this and then yeah that sort of Materializes out of those peer learning conditions, peer mm-hmm. learning interactions. Yeah. There's less of a teacher in peer learning, mm-hmm. but your teachers are the other people in the room that you interact with and reflect with and who guide you.
1: One thing that kind of comes to mind is you're speaking of frontier type situations, frontier markets, lots of unknowns. What are your thoughts about the pandemic basically putting all of us on a frontier? And it's
0: very exciting.
1: (laughs) 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 How has peer-to-peer learning as an approach, as a mindset, as a tool been useful for you and other practitioners?
0: I think for one thing, it's brought people to question a lot of the premises they have about what remote was or what it could mean for them, for instance. So before you'd have meetings uh, physically and it was just the way things were done and for the rest it was via email or the phone. But meetings in person were like the, the main thing. And so things I've sp- spoken to a director of a big mun- municipality here in, in Holland at the beginning of the pandemic. We had a sort of a gathering of these types of C-suite people to ventilate about all these problems we have with yeah going remote and how do you keep people connected and learning. And he described this very strange setting where the whole organization had never heard of of chat before as a formal tool they would use or video calling like how do you do that and then they, they try to implement their own traditions as to how to organize meetings where there would be one person <laughs> talking most of the time and see that augmented in like the virtual setting where people were just nodding off and there was the up-teamed meeting they were in and It it broke completely. And because people are running into sort of these realizations, like, hey, what I'm used to doing does not work in this virtual context. People are questioning a lot, like, okay, how do I need to change this? How do I need to make it work? And the interesting part is I'm hearing now the months of the pandemic have settled in. I'm hearing stories of people actually inventing new ways of teaching, of interacting in meetings that are super interesting and they're here to stay. And eventually, I think when we get out of this thing hopefully but i don't know
1: who knows yeah
0: yeah i think a lot of ideas and concepts will stick and we'll have a different way of of interacting and working together be it remote or in person that that way because yeah we have to re-examine the whole the whole way we're we're communicating basically from scratch with this and it's opening up minds in in, in a way so in that sense it's a exciting times yeah and now, me as an educator, I get to try a lot of things as well, which is fun and interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's very much almost expected <laughs> and not even allowed, but <laughs> you, every, you, everyone you're yeah. interacting with is also trying to adapt and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. But still, so you have clients that freak out by the idea of you <laughs> trying something new. Like, I've never tried this before, but
1: <laughs> 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 have you been in a pandemic before? <laughs> <laughs> Interactivity, this is a topic that seems to come up quite a lot in terms of Zoom meetings. Presenters are afraid that whatever they're doing won't be interactive and everyone's mm. just going to be mute and flossing their mm. teeth in. On the other hand, you have participants which need to sit through hours and hours of streaming content of varying quality and relevance.
0: <laughs> what does interactivity mean in this context? I think there's a big misconception about what interactivity is and I see it being interpreted a lot as showmanship. I see a lot of people with workshops or people with events bringing stuff online. The first priority they have is is the show with the, the bells and the whistles and the lights and the the whole operation turns into a live news broadcasting studio with green screen. If you look at the people listening in, they're still basically watching a TV show.
1: Right? <laughs> or expecting one, at least.
0: If you look at the basic interaction, it's not very different from just a Zoom meeting. It just looks nicer. <laughs> it has something gratifying to see animations and things flying and panning cameras and switching perspectives, but that still is not the interaction that you want, right? I think what interaction really means or what people are looking for is more control over interacting and contributing in in a group setting, especially when you're looking at a remote situation. I think one of the hardest things I had to figure out online is how to give people control over what topics they want to raise, if they want to dive deeper into something, how do you sort of halt the process and focus on that? How do you give people a sort of a, a menu or things to choose from so they can pick where they want to talk about rather than me determining we're going to talk about this. And those are all things that you do in a in-person peer learning setting more intuitively because you have space, you have people, you have breakout rooms or tables, and you can shift people around, etc. Cetera, et cetera. It's easier to organize. But when you're doing that online, you have to really think like the basics. Okay, so so does Zoom allow people to choose their own breakout rooms? No. <laughs> okay. How do we create that atmosphere that people can freely, yeah, navigate the menu of what you want to want to offer and 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 and, and and, and interact with the people they need to be interacting with. So
1: it's almost like creating a space in digital space in the software and the structure around which the interaction can take place. And it is constrained by the features of the software you're using. But at the same time, those features themselves aren't actually what's important. It's the human interaction.
0: Yeah. What I've seen is that there's like a basic set of features, for instance, with Zoom that anticipates a very minimum level of interaction. Like, raise your hand, right? Pop a question, chat box, uh, give a thumbs up, uh, <laughs> emoji, right? Those are basic forms of, of interaction. But like, when you want to do really funky stuff, like giving people the choice to which breakout rooms they want to join, Zoom does not have that built in, in a way. And I think it never will because it's a very highly customized way of interaction but yeah as a facilitator for a certain process like i want to make that happen so how do i do it and then yeah you find workarounds with whiteboards and you put links on whiteboards right to personal zoom links so people click on the whiteboard and pop into a a certain room and just label a a post-it with a topic or something people can choose and there are workarounds it's interesting to figure out a very basic way of giving people the power to navigate a crowd and then become part of a smaller subgroup where conversations take place and and then it starts flowing because 30 40 50 100 people zoom room it's dead right it doesn't work but when you up to to five people in a room then you can have a natural way of talking and conversation and that's the trick that you have to do. And that's what I would consider interactivity.
1: I read an article a while back about how certain software programs are designed from the ground up for interaction amongst people. I think a lot of these whiteboard apps like like Miro or Mural, um, they've been around in one form or another for a few years, but now they're finally mature enough that you actually can use them and (laughs) well-timed with the pandemic. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. They saw it
0: coming. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Those things have been a blessing. It's just like even, like, I recently discovered what also works is a concept of skew morphism, where you have interaction digitally with objects that look like the thing in real life. So, mm-hmm. iPhone had that with like their first apps, like YouTube was a TV, and the calendar was like a diary with a leather bound diary icon. Like, you click it, it looked like the thing in real life. And, yeah. With whiteboards, you're able to make like uh, a stage. I, I just literally just stuck a picture of a stage on there. And then you put a, a picture of a person or you put a topic on stage and you focus on stage and you share your screen and stage. <laughs> and it, it works. It gives people a sense of, okay, we're focusing on this. You can yeah. put like uh, arrows and areas and you can decorate with plants and you can you make something of it, which gives people a feeling of, yeah, this person or this environment that I'm entering is, yeah, it's taken care of and people, people have the thought into it. Yeah. And and it works. It engages people's, uh, yeah, it brings focus to discussions. Uh, Whiteboard people can also take control. They can make stuff. They can take notes. They can share notes. They can, when, even when the meeting's done, right, they can still use the handles of the people that were in the meeting on the board and you start Side conversations, you can still use the artifacts that you've made during whatever meeting you had. So, yeah, I think they've been a blessing. And they work in, I did things in South America with, in Peru, with a like very bad internet connection. Yeah. It worked. They just,
1: yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Good stuff. You're working with a group that's trying to solve a difficult problem. How do you think about the group goals and the group dynamics
0: uh, when you're going into a peer learning session? The first thing is, you need to create a setting of where, where people can bond and it should be a safe space where people can open up and share because if there's defensiveness, if there's competitiveness in a group, it becomes yeah, very hard to unlock or even get good questions, like honest questions. I don't know this, what is it about, <laughs> right? Mm. People then just pretend, pretend to know everything. And they, when somebody has a problem, they'll solve it instantly. You want to create a setting firstly of openness and familiarity with, within the group, right? And you spend like time to cultivate that very actively and consciously. Mm-hmm. If I enter a new group, sometimes it's established, right? And I do a couple of things and I feel like, ah, oh, they're in it and we can move ahead. But sometimes you need to start from scratch and, and find a very basic human common ground before you delve into you know, whatever challenges or problems people are working on. So one of the things you try to do is in a group setting to remove jargon from the way people talk because then there are people who just don't understand it and they feel inferior or uh, incompetent in a way. Yeah. Uh, it's also uh, a setting where you use authority of people who are a bit further or more advanced to actually help, the, actively help the young guys and you can tag people as a sort of the manager or the curator of the group because who needs to be helped. Hmm. Right in a clinic setting, there's all there's interesting interactions that you can think of to, to help these people come along. And it's usually yeah, when new people come in or people who don't speak the language or are a bit timid, the conversation has to go to very elementary wording. And yeah. that's when people actually realize like, oh shit, we actually don't know what we're doing here. We explain it to this new person. So that's a a big problem. And it's it's also like what you're trying to do with with essentially with peer learning is to combine new spheres of knowledge that have not been combined in any way before. So Mm. in that safe space that you're trying to create, what you're doing is telling people that this is new. So we need to still figure out how to talk to each other here and the best way we can figure out our common language is by very, you know, practical stuff that we're doing and collaborate and just see if we can work together. Mm. And it's not nobody has the one answer or the right answer here. What we're trying to do is actually figure out how to collaborate. And having somebody who feels like new or alien to that environment is actually very sort of interesting, sort of bottleneck to work with. To see, mm. let, let's see how we can put this person into a capacity, in another capacity that will work where their where their yeah their knowledge or their experience or their superpowers will be expressed in the way we interact and collaborate so that's very much part of that that safe yeah, safe space setting is mm. yeah, dealing with particular anxieties or apprehensions that people might have there's also facilitator tricks if somebody's quiet you can just defer the conversation to them or ease them into the conversation by asking them questions or you're getting them to share about what they don't know, and then maybe say, "You don't know that. Does anybody else in the room know about this?" Yeah, connect people in that way. Tell us about the the book, the the peer learning guide. That's been an interesting journey in writing that. I think the the main reason why I wrote it is for ourselves. Uh, we've been talking about peer learning for a couple of years. We've been applying it and learning and we saw sort of this shift in the way you do things with more matured more advanced communities versus starting communities and, and and we got to think okay so how do we work like how do we do these things that we do and how do we design programs of a week or two weeks like how well, we do it but how how do we do it <laughs> <laughs> It's available online. The website is uh, peerlearning.is or peerlearning.is. You can read all, all our writing, basically our whole sort of book. We had the idea of making a book out of it, but we did not get any further than a collection of sort of our chapters online. But it's all there. There's also a DRIP newsletter. It's automated. You sign up and then every three days you get a little excerpt from the book some explanation some chapters to read to ease you into the matter if if you if you find it interesting and if you're interested then we definitely yeah still like to hear from you and and get feedback on on what we're working on it's like just the first sort of the voyager probe maybe that's a (laughs) comparison (laughs) just sending that thing out there and then seeing what type of alien mind will say hey I understand that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to use that or I want to get in touch with the originator. What we try to do is not only list formats, but give people which formats to pick for which particular circumstance. How do you sequence formats?
1: That's great. Bart, thank you very much. So that was quite an intellectual whirlwind of an episode. I think my biggest takeaways are the principles at work, in particular the idea of inverting control and letting learners lead so that learners can solve problems themselves and enabling that as a group, uh, regardless of whether you're doing it online or offline. I think that's a really powerful principle that really helps speed things up uh, in terms of coming to... Good solutions. The other thing is to think in terms of who knows whom, even in an organization where uh, you do have a lot of people. Various people interact only within their own immediate groups, which tends to limit the amount of knowledge that they're exposed to. So, in fact, deliberately looking at who can be introduced together so that it's useful both within the company and sometimes even outside of it. Can help really speed things up in terms of getting a good uh, interaction going and a fruitful one, most importantly. So, our next episode is going to go slightly in a different direction. We will be looking at achieving results and what that actually means in practice, in particular, what it means for leaders and managers. So, tune in next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Align Remotely podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have an important meeting coming up in your company and you'd like help from an expert facilitator... With anything like coming up with a vision, aligning across uh, various departments, uh, or figuring out how to implement a strategy. And then uh, book a call with me at talkwithluke.com.